Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Why Not North Carolina. I can't figure it out. Why not North Carolina? Barry, got any ideas? Why not? I have no ideas. I guess they're saying we're capable of anything. Why not us? And we're saying, why not be in Why Not North Carolina? So that's where we are. We're in Why Not North Carolina today. Again, Rich, uh, Rich is our guest and we're delighted to have him. Any thoughts on that, Rich? You're a counselor. I mean, I've got to I believe people come to you with questions all the time of why can't I do this? Why not? Counseling or why not? <laughs> I would Either say, one, Rich. <laughs> get ready for anything. Why not? We're ready. Be ready for anything. Exactly. Why not? Get ready for anything. Okay, so I'm going to keep messing around here. We'll uh, flip it over to Ray or let Ray uh, take this and set it up, introduce Rich. Uh, We're delighted to have him, as I said, and maybe explore this whole notion of how one-on-one dialogue fits within the context or counseling. Okay, thanks. I want you to meet Bob and I's good friend, Dr. Richard Dombrowski. We have known each other since really late adolescence. Richard and I were at MSU approximately the same time, doing some of the same kind of work. And he is a lifelong friend and colleague and a gentleman we have the greatest affection for. MSU, MSU, Montana State University? No, that's Michigan State University. Oh, okay. Just want to make sure. I mean, some people wouldn't recognize MSU, Ray. Just just No, everyone recognizes MSU. Go right through. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, Richard has been involved in therapy, doing counseling professionally for decades now, but recently retired. And we wanted to have him join us in a conversation about this idea of dialogue and its application to one-on-one conversation or small group conversation in which, uh, as a therapist, he has been actively involved in promoting, encouraging dialogue among those he sees, families certainly, and couples. And so we're glad to have you, Rich. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Why don't you take just a moment or so and Fill us in on the length of time you've been involved in practice of counseling and what might have prompted you to head into that field. Well, I've been in private practice for 35 years before I retired. Mainly, I was in a group practice with several other psychologists and social workers. Other settings that I've worked in have been like an HMO setting where you have an integrated medical and mental health or health psychology department. Been enjoyable for the most part. It's been very challenging. Okay, I got to stop you there, Rich. Enjoyable for the most part? (laughs) You're going to have to explain yourself there. The most part is in the group practice and some of the people I worked with. Not clients, but co-workers. (laughs) I would have missed that. (laughs) So the clients are good to go, are okay. But it's some of those uh, colleagues that maybe uh, I would uh, reconsider over the 35 years. Yes, I would have probably chosen a different pathway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rich, is there any particular theoretical position or style of therapy that you uh, subscribe to over the years? I think I would refer to myself as someone who's an integrative therapist. I use a variety of different approaches, and sometimes it depends on the client who's coming in and what they're looking for. I did have someone come in one time and say, I don't want any of that psychodynamic stuff. 
I'm going to have to see you for years. And this was a client eventually I could never get rid of. <laughs> uh, I would say for the most part, Carl Rogers had a significant effect on the development of my work. I, I did know a fellow one time who told me I started out seeing clients uh, in the morning as Carl Rogers. And by the time the afternoon rolled by, I was Albert Ellis. <laughs> so for those people who don't know Albert Ellis, he was pretty directive uh, and pretty confrontive with people, whereas Carl Rogers was very accepting, passive in his interactions yes. with the client. Yeah, I try to base my work on the two Roger brothers, Carl and Fred. <laughs> there it is. There you go. Good guy. I good. truly think that very much that's an important piece of acceptance of where the client is at the time and where they want to go and recognizing that we are very similar. Well, it's a wonderful image in terms of Carl Rogers being a preeminent psychologist in the field. And what wouldn't we refer to it as Rogerian therapy? And Mr. Rogers being absolutely wonderful as a child's therapist, although he never hung out that shingle, but he certainly was providing great healing and great force in that whole area. So I love your image of a combination of the, the two Rogers, Carl and Fred. <laughs> well, Rich, as, as you might know, we've been focused on the theme of dialogue how to promote that, how to use it successfully in group conversations and even individual. And I push more for the one-on-one -on -one idea of how you apply it. When when you think of that concept of dialogue, what application do you think it has in counseling? Well, I would say that it's central, but at the same time, I recognize that while it's not dialogue, there's still communication, even when there are long silent stretches and getting comfortable with those and being able to listen, both using our sense of hearing, but also our observational senses, and to understand what a client is feeling, experiencing, and trying to communicate at that time. So when I think of dialogue, I think it's kind of a back and forth discussion. But I think when it's effective, it is involving that process of listening and trying to reach a better understanding of joining with that person as to what their experience and what their thoughts are. Well, Rich, maybe even to expand on that, how would you analyze specifically the communicative side of the therapeutic process when you're counseling? If you were to focus just on what's going on in that particular session communicatively, and you've spoken to a couple of those issues, the silence, it's not only listening, but it's paying attention, it's observing. Any other thoughts you have in terms of your feeling about how do I manage that communicative aspect of what we're doing here in this moment? Well, I think it, it depends. Early on, there's a greater need to try and manage that. And I think there are times when people come in and you do have a sense that, and you've seen them for a while, you have a sense that there's something that they want to talk about, but they're talking about everything else, you know, their cat or whatever it might be. And, and the clock is ticking away. And we both know this is time-limited interaction between two of us. And it takes it, you know, it, I think part of dialogue is being able to confront the other person with what you sense it is that they really are there for, that they're avoiding it, and that they need to take a closer look. So there's some times where you need to be more involved or active in the process. Most of the time where you just need to be able to be less active directly toward the person and more receptive. And yet you use the word kind of confront them when they're unwilling to face that or they're talking around it. How would you go about doing that? Well, one common way I would do that is to ask them if there's something that they wanted to talk about today, they're not addressing or 
recognizing that we have this limit of time today to discuss. Anybody that's done therapy for a while knows that it might be in the last five minutes, and that's extended, five minutes of the session where the important issue comes up. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there as a therapist thinking, in about three minutes, I'm going to have to say our time is up. And it's very frustrating for the other person. So early in therapy, we learn that process together, what we're here for, how we begin, how we continue. And that we're not here just to talk about the last baseball game or or the weather or whatever. We're here to really address the issues that are important and that brought them. So I will ask some questions that will probably pose to them, how are we doing? How are you progressing with this? Are things better? And that usually brings them back to talking about the things that they need to talk about. Well, I'm sitting here smiling, recalling one of my clinical experiences and realizing how much more confrontive I am than Richard is. Because I was with a client, I remember distinctly, I was with a client. And after about five minutes of brief conversation, I was falling asleep. <laughs> I, was, I was dozing off. I was kind of nodding. I thought, hey, wait a minute, this person's paying for this. You owe them a greater degree of concentration and effort. So I shook myself awake. And about three minutes later, I was back in the same trance. So I finally said to the person, I said, you know, you are boring me to death. I'm about to fall asleep. Are you talking about anything that's important to you? And the client's response was, well, no, but I'm paying for this. I thought I ought to just talk. I said, don't do that. So talk about things that make a difference to you. Talk about anything that's important to you. Otherwise, there's nothing good going to happen. Well, then the individual started talking about something just it seemed off hand to her, but it was very meaningful, very important, and we got a lot out of it. Mm. So I was really identified with you, Rich, that there are times that the bulk of our contact was spent avoiding something that was critical to what the person needed to be working on and what they need to pay attention to. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of Rich's comments caused me to think maybe it'd be good for you to restate what you said in our last episode about how you view dialogue in these one-on-one encounters. Because the way Rich was talking about and saying, well, sometimes we get in a, a discussion and we make a very clear distinction between discussion and dialogue as having two different fundamental ways or sources of communicating. And Ray was closing our last session with talking about how he viewed dialogue as a part of this process. Would you want to restate that and then give Rich a chance to react to it and say, yeah, I buy that or not? That's not quite how I view that. Well, I view dialogue, at least in a clinical setting when I was in it, I view dialogue as creating the opportunity for an individual to examine what they were saying. And I have one so far, Rich, is to say that on occasion, I wanted them to talk to themselves. I, I wanted them to have an exchange with themselves about what the, were they hearing what they were saying? Were they alert or aware of what, what they're communicating? Because very often, I think people speak and they don't really pick up on some of the more interesting things they're saying about themselves and about their environment and about their experience. So for me, the clinical process is one in which I promoted dialogue. And that dialogue wasn't so much with me as it was with the ideas they had going on inside themselves that they needed to get out in front of them. Often those things, until they get outside them, they they weren't alert to what was really going on. It had been ruminating internally, but it wasn't until they said it and it got outside that they saw for what it was and really kind of surprised them. I view the process of dialogue as people opening up, people expanding their understanding, people expanding their awareness of what's going on. And that sometimes, Bob and I have been talking about mostly rich as a process, not so much just an exchange, because, you know, I was thinking about that very often people have conversation that won't turn into dialogue because there's nothing to solve. It's just 
polite conversation. It's friend conversation. It's barbecue conversation. But when there's an issue to be addressed, when there's something to be achieved in conversation, in exchange, I think that's when you and I are promoting the idea, get into dialogue if you can, because that's where those answers lie. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were referring to, Bob, or am I missing the point? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'd be interested in hearing how Rich sees that kind of comment with his own experience being a professional counselor. Well, I think Ray has expressed something that shows how dialogue can be very different depending on the individuals involved. Mm. So in my approach to therapy, I would probably start out by asking someone why they're here. And that's a difficult question for them to answer for the most part. Mm-hmm. My wife said I needed to be here. <laughs> well, you know, have any idea why? So I might ask some questions, but early on, I'm going to kind of describe what this relationship and process is like, that I'm going to do a lot of listening, not a lot of talking. Your role here is to bring in what it is that's important to you, what goals you have. We'll work on those together, but I'm going to listen to you because I can't read your mind. And people will admit, I know that, but I thought you could. (laughs) So it it would be a process of Getting started, and then the closer we become and the more comfortable they become, there's a greater opportunity for more of an equal dialogue process. One of the things we say, Rich, in terms of dialogue is that there are three things that distinguish dialogue from other forms of communication. One is there's an increased level of inquiry versus advocacy. Oftentimes in conversations, people find themselves constantly advocating for a position. But in dialogue, what you see is increased levels of inquiry, genuine interest in the other. And I think what I'm hearing you describe is just that very thing of this increased level of active listening and really inquiring into the other. That's kind of a role you see yourself playing. But the other two are creating a greater level of shared understanding And I was hearing Ray say that's one of the purposes of being a counselor is to help the person increase their level of understanding of what's really happening for them, of what's really going on, not necessarily between the counselor and the client, but about themselves, that the understanding is about increased awareness of what's really happening for me. And then the third one, and I'm interested in this one, is to expand, and I think I heard you use that term, expand the ideas, or we use the term divergent thinking versus convergent thinking, rather than zeroing in on one thing, which frankly, I would say would be an Albert Ellis approach. It's to create greater and expanded thinking so the person can really explore what is really happening. So for me, as I'm hearing you talk and Ray talk, it really does strike me that those are the elements of a counseling relationship. Would you buy into that? Or would you say, no, the two of them I like, but maybe not this one? Or where would you be on that? Yeah, I would buy into that. I think the relationship evolves over time. Mm-hmm. Someone's coming in and they have probably no experience in therapy before. And so they're wondering, what's the process here? How do we do this? Mm-hmm. I have a diploma on the wall. I must be the expert. <laughs> Tell me what I need to do. Fix me. Or better than that, decide who's right or wrong here. You <laughs> are my partner. And so I think that ability to have dialogue where two people are relating to each other on more equal basis is something that develops over time in that therapy process. Hmm. And if a person is accepting and non-judgmental of the client who's coming in, it can move quite well. And even in times of silence, there can be pieces of insight and understanding that the client develops that they wouldn't if we were just talking back and forth together in what would be called a conversation. Well, it's a bit like you said earlier, Rich, I find it so interesting that a client would come in and say, I don't want this to be prolonged. 
if I can get this done in three or four sessions, that's fine for me. And then find out months to years later, they're still actively engaged in the relationship. And I do think that's exactly what happens for a lot of people. They walk in believing they really wouldn't be there without the provoking or the prompting of someone else. Mm -hmm. And they sort of meet that promise or that commitment and then find out there's real value in it for them. Find out that they are understanding themselves. They are understanding what the process is. And you so eloquently have laid out the idea that I have to help these people understand what the process is going to be. And so they can find themselves in it without feeling awkward and without feeling like they're at risk. And I loved hearing that again. It's been a long time since I've heard a therapist talk about helping someone draw the boundaries around the relationship. Well, I can't believe it, but we are close to being out of time. And so I think it really would be wonderful if maybe the two of you would think about ways you would summarize uh, what we've talked about. Frankly, Rich, the last one I asked Ray, if we could get some therapy, if I could get some help from you, if you came on the show. And he said, not unless I'm willing to pay for it. And I thought later, well, Rich is not that kind of guy. I should be able to get their free help. But anyway, I've been giving you two the chance to close this one off. Well, there was one thing I wanted to ask Rich that we haven't gotten to. And if I were to want the last few minutes to spend on it, it would be the idea of, Rich, I know you're a man of faith for years. And I, I'm interested in how you've seen your faith play into your professional role. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I think that's something that's evolved over time, too. When I started out, uh, you know, you're always wanting to make contacts for, for referral sources. And so one of the first places I would go would be to pastors that I knew in the area. And one of the things that I found I experienced pretty much across the board was that there was some kind of litmus test that I had to pass, like like Solomon with the with the two women claiming the baby is there. Oh. You know, how would you handle this, you know? And, and somehow the answer had to come directly from scripture. And so even though I saw myself, you know, as, as a believer, as a Christian, I didn't sense that, that I was a biblical therapist or a Christian therapist. So that caused me to begin to think about why am I doing this and what, how does that fit in with what I believe? Because clearly some of what I'd be dealing with with clients would be something that wouldn't fit into my moral structure, perhaps, but it did in theirs. And I needed to be able to be there with them and accept them where they were. So I saw this more as I'm someone who has the opportunity to be alongside this person and to share their life with them, not to tell them how they need to be living that life. That if I can provide a relationship in which that person can be open and honest with me, then they will come to the point where they will make better choices for themselves. Terrific. It has been great having you. And I'm sure that those who will listen will find your comments both insightful and delightful. It's been a real privilege. I just wish I would have gotten more therapeutic help. (laughs) Believe me, I wish I had too. (laughs) That's another point. I want to say one other thing. That whole process of dialogue is that not only one party benefits, but all those involved benefit. Mm. And I gained a lot in terms of understanding myself better and looking at things differently from my work with the clients. I learned a lot from my clients. That's a wonderful perspective. Thanks, Rich. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is. 
almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. Thank you.